This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name is Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the One Thing team. This podcast and each episode is really driven based on your feedback. There was an episode we released earlier this year that so many of you emailed us saying, wow, this one really made a difference for me and I would love if you would bring this person back. That episode was episode 145 entitled, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter and the Multiplier Effect with Liz Wiseman. The feedback we received from you is that you understand no one succeeds alone. If you want to achieve extraordinary things in your life, it's going to require that you do it with other people. And that episode really shined a light on the times where you might actually be showing up and multiplying the talent around you and the times where you may accidentally be diminishing the talent, making the possibilities for you, your team, and your organization smaller. We decided, based on your feedback, that we would bring Liz back. This time, we would take a different spin on the episode. Instead of interviewing her, we would ask her to turn the tables on me and really interrogate where I'm accidentally diminishing as a leader. This episode will bring value to you whether you own a business, whether you're a leader in an organization, or whether you're an employee. It'll help you because it'll start to raise your awareness of where you could be doing a better job of showing up and also may give you the ability to influence the people around you to start showing up more like a multiplier when they currently might be accidentally diminishing. As you go through the episode, we'll challenge you. Can you think of five people that really need to hear this episode? If you've got someone in your world that, man, you just wish they would start showing up differently, this might be a great episode to share with them very suddenly and say, hey, I came across this awesome episode and share it with them. And let's see what they take from it. With that, let's get into this episode with New York Times bestselling author of Multipliers, Liz Wiseman. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch, snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Liz, for people who didn't get a chance to be with us live during our One Thing webinar series or get the chance to listen to episode 145 of the One Thing podcast, what does it mean to be a multiplier versus a diminisher? Well, a multiplier, the name itself probably um, implies a few things, but a multiplier is a is a leader who uses his or her intelligence and knowledge and capability and talent. They use their own capability in a way that uses and grows capability in others. They're leaders around whom we tend to do our very best thinking and our best work. And the diminisher, as the name implies, is someone who, I guess, probably said in the most um, sort of curt way, is they, they they suck intelligence in life out of groups and people. But they're they're leaders around whom we don't tend to do our best work. We tend to hold back and play it safe around that they diminish the intelligence and capability of others. As a researcher, you've also had the chance to interview some leaders in very large businesses across the globe. When you sit down with these leaders, what percentage of them think that they're a multiplier and actually end up discovering they've got that they've got diminishing tendencies? You know, it's funny, the the most abject diminishers 
tend to see themselves as multipliers. Um, I, I've developed this little litmus test over the years. Maybe I shouldn't confess it to everyone because then it'll stop being a litmus test. But I look for the reaction to the idea in the book and that a lot of people say, oh, I read your book or I love this idea of multipliers. And, and I usually know what's coming next because they say, oh, because I'm such a multiplier. And I find that people who tend to have that reaction to the idea or the book often have either um, extreme diminishing tendencies or some pretty significant diminishing tendencies that they don't see, whereas people who probably are are more on the multiplier side of the spectrum usually have a reaction that's more like this, like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder, or like I read the book. Or I heard you talk, and and I really saw a lot of these diminishing tendencies in in myself. Particularly, they see in themselves the accidental diminisher, which is the really well-intended leader who, despite the best of intentions and often practicing some really popular management practices, are are shutting down ideas and capability and energy and others. So it's, we do see a lot of diminishers lack the awareness to see their own diminishing um, approach. Mm-hmm. Which when I went through the book, all I could think is, oh my goodness. <laughs> all these things that I thought were strengths actually, if overused, can lead to me accidentally diminishing. Yeah. Which, so did you have like OMG written in the margin everywhere? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, there was actually a little, there's almost like an oil stain on the pages from my chin <laughs> dropping. Some people have told me there's like tear stains on the book. And and um, it's funny because a reaction I sometimes, well, I get a lot of people say, oh, wow, that was a painful book. And when I wrote it, I was a first time author. And I was like, wait a minute, what do you mean by painful? Like painful to read? They're like, no, it was painful because I kept seeing these diminishing qualities or tendencies. And of course, you know, a lot of people have the heart of the multiplier, but a lot of people have been living in the land of diminishers for a long time, you know, meaning working for companies led by diminishers or with diminishing cultures that that they've gone native. Right. Well, that brings us to the purpose of today's episode, which uh, so many of you were huge fans of our initial interview back in 145 that I reached out to Liz and said, Liz, you know what I think would be kind of fun? What if we turned the tables and you got to play coach and we just started interrogating all the places that I may be accidentally diminishing and what I should do about it? And this is an irresistible offer. (laughs) How fun is this going to be? This is going to be tons of fun for me. Way more fun to ask the questions than to be answering the questions. Um, And hopefully this is going to be fun for you and all of your colleagues who are probably going to listen to this episode. This might be the episode that they listen to and take notes. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So when I'm hiring talent in the future, I'm going to say, if you want to know everything about me, listen to this episode. Yeah, it's going to be in the briefing package on Glassdoor. Yep, that's right. That's right. So uh, I'm I'm turning the mic over to you and grab your popcorn, folks. Let's see where this goes. Okay, Jeff, thank you. Thank you for being willing to do this. Um, you know, we do find that most of the diminishing that that happens is done with the best intent. So we're gonna we're gonna start there. But before we jump in, I want you to tell all of us a little bit about the work you do. People might be familiar with you in your role here on this podcast, but tell me about the work you do as as a leader, as a manager, just so we can kind of get a, a sense for it. Now, when you say the work, are you talking about what my vision is, what we're working toward, what my day-to-day activities look like? What do you mean? Your, uh, your leadership work, like where... In what way, like what team do you lead? What kind of sure. leadership do you provide? And and include in that, you, you're a father as yep. well. Yep, absolutely. So throw that into the mix. Sure. Well, then I'll say first and foremost, I'm a husband uh, who is trying to figure out how to keep my wife happy. Mm-hmm. I am a father of two who has kind of just discovered along this journey, having children has helped me develop a sense of purpose in terms of sharing ideas that expand people's minds and to Mm. be someone who has the heart of a teacher who loves sharing ideas, who loves expanding people's minds. And then to see 
your five-year-old daughter, my podcast producer was over at my house and he was struggling with something on his phone. And my daughter walked up to him, put her hand on his shoulder and said, don't give up. Persist mm. until you succeed. Are you kidding? <laughs> it's like, yeah, baby. <laughs> Mini me. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and then when we, we look at the organization behind the one thing, uh, at this point in time, I have one direct report in Kaylin, who's our community manager. We've got an army of contractors who help us. And then I've got uh, partners, Gary, Jay, Abe on the coaching side and, and the staff supporting the coaching company in Jake and Taylor. So we're, we're a lean and mean team and uh, building this startup that's, that's finally sustainably profitable. Mm. Okay, great. And so you've got actually a very um, typical leadership bag there in that you've got some people you manage directly, you've got stakeholders that you collaborate with and, and manage, you've got outside contractors. So you're like a new age kind of leader and manager. Yes. Yeah. Um, great. So let's let's talk about kind of where you see your natural strengths as a multiplier. So when you think about the things that multipliers do, like their talent magnets, they they see and use genius in others, they they're liberators, they create space for people to think, they're challengers, they they invite people to discover things that are possible. They're debate makers. They're investors. They put other people in charge and, and all that. Like if you had to pick out like your strength, like, yeah, I do that. And yeah. not only do I feel like I do it, I think that the people I work with would say, you know what? In that respect, Jeff is absolutely a multiplier. What would it be? Uh, first one that comes to mind is talent magnet. I have always had an ability to get in relationship with people who are talented, some that were uh, light years ahead of me in the form of mentors. That's how I got to where I am today, to be able to attract those type of people in my life and to form deep relationships with them. And now that I've actually gone through the models behind our hiring process, I feel really solid about being able to attract talent into our organization. I, I definitely see myself as a challenger in that I love. I mean, this is part of my identity and part of my purpose, expanding people's minds. And if that's through sharing ideas or challenging mm. their current thought patterns, love doing that. I love to spark debate. Um, I loved reading in the book, the idea of being a debate maker, not having all the answers, but always ch being able to just that catalyst so that other people can start to have debate and conversations and meetings is something I've been focusing on as well. So if I, so you see those things, kind of talent magnet, challenger, debate maker. If I called up one of the people you worked with mm -hmm. and said, you know, talk to me about Jeff. Like, what is his absolute strength as a leader? What does he do better than anything else he does? And maybe I showed him this multipliers framework. What do you think they would say? You know, because leadership is really, it's in the eyes of the beholder. I think it would be something along the lines of being a uh, a spokesperson of the brand. Mm. Jay and I were talking about this the other day. I don't always... Uh, coming up with the initial words is not always my strength, but I can hear Jay say something once and I can step in front of 500 executives and deliver it better than most other people. So you become like a megaphone. Yes. To, to the brand. Yeah. Okay. It's an incredible strength to have. Okay. But I want to kind of pick on that one a little bit because not knowing a whole lot about that, like that is ripe ground for diminishing <laughs> and for accidental diminishing. Like, because what's it saying is like, I have, I'm quick to, to be able to like, um, figure something out and to figure out how to, um, say it back and I become the spokesperson for the brand. You know, in some ways I'm a spokesperson for my company because I'm the author of the books. And I know that, boy, you can slip down into diminisher territory so fast. So talk to me. Like, I want you to just make a case for me about how that strength as a leader could end up landing you, not just an accidental diminisher, but like just hypothesize, like abject, total train wreck kind of diminisher? Like, how could that happen? Well, the first thing, and this is something Jay's challenging me on all the time, is that uh, I can be a character, interesting character of the business, not the interesting mm. character 
of the business because <laughs> I'm not interested in shackling myself to a job. So finding ways to have leverage and also what's the best interest of the business? Is it to build the stock all around one person? Absolutely not. So he's challenging me in terms of this podcast. Who else can step behind the mic and bring leverage? Who else can step in front of a Fortune 10 company and deliver trainings at your level, if not better? Right. So that's one of them. The other is... Meaning you've got to create a big stage there that other people... Bingo. Can, you know, like a whole band effect rather than solo artists, because Bingo. it would be very easy to be, end up a solo artist. Mm-hmm. And the, everyone else is like, whoa, background, uh, backup dancers at best. Yep. The other is that part of being a spokesperson by default makes you the expert, which in your language, mm. um, being the genius rather than the genius maker. Yeah. So it's very easy for me. And there's something in my identity of being the guy who has the idea who has the answer. Uh, that was definitely me in medical sales. I loved being able to sit in front of a doctor and to know more about sedation and medication for patients than they did for a very mm. specific therapy. Right. Rather yeah. than knowing the right questions to ask to bring the genius of others out. Right. And you know, it's interesting. I've seen people take this idea of multipliers and really apply it to the sales process because who do you really want to buy from? Do you want to buy from that expert who knows more about sedation than you do? You're like, oh, I better buy what he's selling because he knows so much. Or do you want to buy from the person who, when that salesperson leaves your office, you feel smart, capable, like you're going to make a really good decision. That's right. The latter. Yeah. So you can end up having a diminishing impact. You know, we find that, I mean, in some ways, this is a, a terrible news message is that often people who are blessed with really high intellect, high IQ, great thinking, great ideas can very easily end up diminishing. And not just people with, with high intellect, but also people who are just happen to be fast thinkers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would put myself in this category. I don't know where I'd put myself on the intellect scale, but I tend to be very quick to think like, you know, in that um, slow thinking, fast thinking spectrum. I'm I'm fast thinker, very quick to take in stuff, process and respond. And just the speed of thinking can end up really um, inviting this diminishing dynamic, like fast, smart people, like the path of least resistance is to end up diminishing others. So this is, this was really interesting at the end of Kaylin, who's my right hand at the end of her first 90 days. We did her 90-day review. I asked her several questions about where I was not showing up as great of a leader as I could have, or the things that I she wanted me to stop doing immediately, the things she wanted me to start doing immediately. And one of the things she wrote down that she wanted me to start doing immediately, because I come up with so many ideas, and I'm so excited. I want to share them. That's how I process. She said, Jeff, the next time you have one of your, quote, brilliant ideas, I want you to get a sticky note, write it down, and I want you to identify 10 ways we line this lines up with other dominoes before you present it to me. What she did is is just pure <laughs> genius because once she called out um, uh, an accidental diminisher tendency, we're going to go into that space in just a moment, but also she gave you like a workaround rather than just say, you know what, Jeff, it makes me crazy when you do this. You are a fountain of ideas and I feel like you are launching so many ideas. I spend all my time chasing them. Like, uh-huh. will you put stop? She actually gave you the solution, which is the solution I give to people who have this idea guy tendency. Right. I have it, love ideas, and I know they're not all brilliant, but I think that they'll they'll spark mm-hmm. good thinking elsewhere. And and the workaround is, you know what, get out a piece of paper and take your idea and write it down. Mm-hmm. That's a holding tank. Like that's like that's like your sort of your executive filter. Like write that down, put it on a sticky, and then ask yourself the question: Do you want someone not only it's more than do you want someone to take action on this? Because idea guys, we like people to take action on everything. Like, hey, try this out. Think about this. Why don't you explore that? It's do you want people to stop what they're doing? Right. And work on that. Well, for those of those of you who are listening who are a member in Living Your One Thing, we have this framework we call a 411, Liz, which is um, it's your declaration of what your priorities are. 
the true mm-hmm. most important things for the year, the month, and the week. And what I've started doing is instead of sticky notes, when I have these quote ideas, I look at my 411 and I ask, does this even earn the right to be on the front? Meaning it's something we're actively focusing on. And if not, it just gets parked on the back. And if it does get put on the front, then I'm asking, where am I prioritizing this? Because if I'm saying yes to this, I'm saying no to everything below it because I haven't Mm -hmm. earned the right to focus there. Right. And sometimes we can be really good about focusing ourselves. Like, hey, I'm just ideating. I know that this is for play. I'm not really um, shifting my 411 on this, but we don't realize that it's causing chaos for other people. And you know, it's funny, I've, I've coached a lot of executives and one of the things, you know, we often think executives are these like power mongers or power hungry. They kind of like drive to work thinking up ways to use their power. And my experience is that most leaders inside corporations underestimate their own power. They grossly underestimate this. They think, hey, I'm just tossing out ideas, having fun. And what they don't realize is they're creating whiplash for others because the people who work for you take you seriously. Mm -hmm. And she's your right hand. And so if you're saying, hey, what about this? And why don't we try that? She's like her world. Her one thing is getting whiplashed every day because we underestimate the value of just even brainstorming or soft opinions. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you mentioned a word there, opinions. I I was looking at your chart of all the ways that people accidentally diminish, and I'm looking at the one that says always on, meaning, mm. you know, you're always on. You, 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 you want to create infectious energy by sharing your point of view, but as a result, you end up consuming all the space and others tune you out. And I have noticed all the times where because I'm so used to, quote, being the authority... Mm-hmm. that in a meeting, because I'm, quote, the authority, I'm sharing my ideas so rapidly that I don't give other people the chance, the space, or create an environment where they feel safe to yeah. share ideas that could be better than mine. Yeah, and how do you know when you're in that always-on? Some people live permanently in always-on mode. And you know, I think... People who live permanently in this space, there's a couple of things they don't quite see is, uh, first of all, their energy is not infectious. It's stifling. Um, <laughs> two, they're, they're consuming all of the oxygen in the room. And so nobody else is contributing because there's no, like, there's no oxygen to breathe. And people are like, I'd contribute if I could breathe here in this room with you. And, and they often think, well, nobody's speaking up, so I'll just keep going. Um, But here's the thing that I think people who are permanently always on miss is that people are ignoring them, you know, that they're over-contributing to the point where they become white noise to people around them. And and so they, in some ways, think they're being big, where in reality, they're, they're playing very small. So like, it's the worst of both worlds. They're, they're suffocating others and other people are drowning them out. So I'll tell you what- just a- just to function. I'll tell you what's happened that was super interesting because in the book you talk about this idea of playing fewer chips. What does yeah. that what does that mean? Well, the playing fewer chips means each chip. So it's a metaphor, you know. Um, it's not necessarily a gambling strategy, is is to go into a meeting giving yourself a budget of chips. You know, it's using the same principle behind the one thing work, which is, you know, dispense your opinions in smaller but more intense doses, meaning put all of your energy behind fewer contributions. So you go into a meeting saying, you know what, I've, I've budgeted three chips. Each chip represents something I say or contribute. And it, it's it's knowing when to play big, Yep. but also knowing when to play small. And when you do this, it's funny because we've been taught for years that like, executive presence looks like um, big and charisma, and it leads people down this always-on path. But really good executive presence, if you study, as I have, like really great executives do, they know when to come in big with a big presentation, a big ask, but then they also know how to retreat small. They're actually um, more varied in their style. And because they're more varied, they have these... um, towering contributions that get attention. And of course, when they go small, they create space for other people. So it's actually a way that both the leader is more heard 
mm-hmm. and the people who work for for him or her are more heard as well. So there was a, a very specific example the first time I did this. Okay. We, we were in a meeting discussing the one thing planner, which we mm-hmm. have coming out. And I was meeting with Kaylin and Madeline, who's running the, the point person on the project. And I sat down and I didn't have poker chips on me. What I did have is an abundance of pens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to give myself three chips. And they didn't even, I, don't, I still don't even think they know that I did this. But I put, I put three pens next to my computer. And I knew that every time I made a statement rather than, or shared an idea rather than asking a question, I had to move one pen from one side of the computer to the other. And, oh. and I, it, it was hard to bite my tongue because I wanted to be judicious with what I use. And what was interesting is when I ran out of pens and I really wanted to say something, mm. I found myself asking, how committed am I to going on a road to mastering this? And what's the cost if I don't? And that was sufficient for me to bite my tongue. And I found myself then getting creative, asking, how can I take what I want to say and instead asking it in the form of a question? Right. And the because, Go ahead. Because our questions are carriers for opinions. And, you know, of course, if you're only asking questions that carry with them strong opinions, you're probably little more than a manipulator as a leader. But... I mean, the best questions are, are are open and challenging and invite others to contribute, but you can also kind of trickle your own ideas in in softer ways by by doing it with a question. Mm-hmm. What was interesting was I formulated it as a question, and the answers that we got were so much better than what I would have mm. shared had I had another chip. Wow. Which then, okay, which then led me to doing it again and again to the point where I felt more comfortable giving more ownership, like you call it giving them 51% of the vote. I still got a voice and their project, you have the vote, uh, with me relinquishing more control there. And whether it be the design team or the writing, uh, it's just vastly exceeded my expectations. The product is beautiful. Yeah, because you got something better than what you thought, but it wasn't off base, like you were able to inform and direct that conversation by asking a good question. Um, okay, so this is great. So that's a, that's a wonderful success. I love the idea of pens, like moving the pens back and forth. Another little simple thing people can do is, um, you know, if you don't have pens, you don't have chips, you're just all alone, you're standing like in uh, an airport or something, and you have nothing to remind you of this. I just use the mute button. <laughs> meaning I put myself on mute, not because I'm like chomping down something crunchy. I put myself on mute because I have to then decide, do I, is what I'm going to say worth fumbling with my mobile phone to take myself off mute? So like default to mute. And then you have to say, okay, is it worth taking myself off mute or should I just mm. stay low and let this conversation proceed without my interruption? So that's a simple thing. Okay. So I love this, this, this always on awareness. And my guess is that sometimes you're in this mode, sometimes you're not. How do you know when you've crossed over? Like, what does it look like when you have that realization of, I might be over contributing? Like, what's uh, happening in the room? What's happening in your head? Like, what are the indicators that maybe you should dial it back a little bit? I, well, a few things. Number one, I've been a consciously working on my awareness around this for probably close to six months now. And on top of that, I formed a power habit around asking deadly questions at least once a day. Mm-hmm. I know that I've gone there if I'm starting a meeting by sharing and not by asking questions. Right off the bat, I'm setting the wrong tone. Oh, that's a good one. I think I I fall victim to that. Like I, And it's so easy for leaders to think, okay, I'm just going to get the party started here. Let me frame the thinking. Let me toss out a few ideas to get us started. Because not only does it put you on a roll to, to, to over-contribute, it sends a message to the team, which is, hey, where's the source of ideas coming from in this meeting? Like our job is to have a pen and paper and take down notes because Liz or Jeff or something is going to be the one leading the thinking versus if you come out of the gates with, hey, here's the question we're trying to answer. Yeah. And it, it sets a very different tone because it, it shifts the burden of thinking to the people around you. Yeah, I love that one. That's an indicator. I'm going to do a better job watching for 
the times when I come out of the gate with an idea or a contribution. So thank you on that. Thank you for coaching me on that. And I figured something out, which is um, the direct and the one thing I can do that will make starting with questions rather than statements easier or unnecessary is if I have a time block before the meeting to identify the questions. Mm. Yeah, great. I made a mistake my first, when I hired my executive assistant, I never had time scheduled for me to proactively identify the questions I needed to ask or the statements I wanted to make and to formulate question versions of those statements so they were questions. When I brought Kaylin on, I knew I was going to have to change my game massively to keep her because she's talent. And Mm. so I knew I could not go in just spewing ideas all over her. I had to come in with questions yeah, good. And, you know, so a, a practice that people might take would be to sort of, if you're on like 60-minute meetings, is to just pull those back to 55 and try to end five minutes before the hour, which gives you a chance not just to get some water or whatever, but, you know, having even two minutes before you go into your next meeting with what are the questions I need to ask? How do I want to frame this? What are the what are the questions that will focus the energy and intelligence of this group of people around the right problem. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and, and I have to say, in my like fantasy world, my fantasy corporate world, like leaders come into meetings having thought through not just questions, the right questions, really, you know, these these kind of killer, deadly sort of questions. And it's a fantasy world for myself, but I don't live in that world and, and few people do. So one way around that is to have what I call back pocket questions. And so back pocket questions are, and I think every leader, every manager should have a list of five to 10 great questions. And the idea of a back pocket question is you kind of hold them in your back pocket and they're universal enough that you could use them almost almost anywhere. And, you know, like the simplest of, of back pocket questions might be, what do you think? Or (laughs) like, who can't ask that? And that can be used in, like, I'm trying to find a meeting or a context where you couldn't make use of. So what do you think? I remember hearing Gary talk about, um, he was talking about accountability. And if you're really succeeding through others, people always bring you their problems. And he said, you ready to learn how to succeed through others? Here it is. When others bring you their problem, I want you to ask what are you going to do about it? And shut your mouth. <laughs> yeah, that is a killer back pocket question. What are you going to do about it? And particularly for those of us who also have the dual leadership role of parent. But I just pulled out a few of my back pocket questions. Um, you know, are there any reasons why we shouldn't perceive? Um, do you have what you need to move forward? Uh, what does this look like from your perspective? What else? Which is... Um, a question from Michael Bungay-Stanier that I like. Uh, what concerns do you have? Who can help you solve this problem? Uh, you'll like this one. What are you saying yes to? Like, if you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? Um, how do we fix this so it can't occur again? What are the risks or the downsides? Um, where might the data be misleading us? Or one of my favorite back pocket questions is, what are we assuming to be true that might not be true? I was just going to say in Keith Cunningham's episodes, episode 143 and 44, which was right before yours, Liz, his favorite question to ask is what assumptions are we making? Mm. Yeah, because we live in a world, you know, we know about the world of fake news, but it is so easy to get a data point a fact and come to the wrong conclusion and not see what's going on around it. Um, So, you know, coming in, like if you don't have time to pre-think questions, people can say like, here are my favorite five. And I take them with me everywhere I go. They're right there at the front of my, of mind. And so if I don't have time to prepare and I'm just forced into a conversation or a meeting, these are things that I can use out of the gate or at points where I really want to play a chip, but I really should ask. So Jeff, we've talked, okay, so you're a little bit of an idea guy. That's one of the accidental diminisher tendencies. I share that one with you. 
prone to always on. Uh, what about, are there any others? Uh, that... Yeah, almost all of them. So <laughs> let me just run, let, let, me, let me just run through the ones that stand out and you can decide where you want to go in. Pace setter. I move so fast and I am so energetic. I got two speeds, fast forward and off. So people struggling to keep up with me is a real thing. I absolutely am an optimist. Um, so having people around me, uh, I know it has frustrated people who are like, didn't you see the downside of that? Um, I'm definitely a strategist, meaning that... <sighs> I want to move beyond the status quo, but maybe it's not challenging people to second guess me and to go out and find their own answers. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that stand out. So, like I said, leadership is very much in the eyes of the beholders. I mean, you know, what, what's great is yet you're seeing the vulnerabilities and um, kind of back to this idea of how people react to the book, I think says a lot about people is Seeing a lot of accidental diminisher tendencies in yourself doesn't make you an ax. It doesn't make you a diminisher. It makes you self-aware. Sometimes I get people who come to me and say, "Hey, I took your quiz." So we have this little quiz: "Are you an accidental diminisher?" And uh, it's a short, but uh, I think pretty helpful quiz. A lot of people take it. It's on the book's website. But they come to me and they say, "Hey, I took your quiz," and they they tell me about their low score. And they said, "So, so I'm not uh, a diminisher." or I'm not an accidental diminisher. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So what you're saying is you took the self-assessment quiz <laughs> and sometimes just with that snarky little question, sometimes people get the point. But I'm like, so what that quiz score tells you, <laughs> so, okay, so you're a little late to pick that up. <laughs> Jeff, it's, it's, it's like what that tells you is you don't think that you're a diminisher, but the real question is what are your people around you think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, leadership is very, very much in the eyes of the people you lead, you know, the people who are are the customers to your leadership. So let's say I call up Kaylin or one of your partners or the contractors and say, you know what, what is the thing that Jeff is doing that he thinks is phenomenal leadership and it's actually sucking the life out of people around you or causing you to hold back, maybe not because he's oppressive, but because he just doesn't need help. And, you know, a lot of diminishing happens, not because the the diminisher's like, hey, back off. I got to be the smartest one in the room. Is that people back off because the leader seems so capable, like so not in need of help. So anyway, if I ask this question, like, what's the thing that he thinks is amazing about what he's doing that might just be sucking the life? Like what, if I pick up the Mm. phone and call we got one of them live with us. Um, what would the answer be? Because this is going to be it's, the one it, thing. Yeah, it's it. Well, it's, it's interesting. It's different depending on the person that you ask. For Kaylin, it would have been the ideas. Because mm. I just I I always have so many, and she's looking at her four one one and going, "How do I do all this?" Yeah. Um, which now she's got the language to say, Jeff. My one thing is this. I'm hearing you say you want to do this. Where does this fall in order of priority? And does it replace my one thing? Which I always say no. And she says, great. Then we haven't earned the right to go there yet. Which I get so excited when she says that. So Kaylin's brilliant. And she should be like a a, a management psychologist because you haven't earned the right to go there yet. It's such a great way of keeping an accidental diminisher at bay. You know, it's not like, hey, you're an oppressive manager and I can't breathe around you. It's just like, hey, you know what? I'm not diverting. Like, I'm not going to be just a reactionary follower. I'm going to be a really intentional contributor. When I think of Diane, our ops manager, it would be me. um, I'm not detail-oriented, so I'll go, yeah, we can do that. Because in my mind, it's like, sure, we can do that. And not always accounting for... Well, what's the fine? What's the accounting repercussions of that? Mm. What are the systems that are required to do this? Does this scale? I don't think that stuff through, mm. and I know it's created headaches for for others. Okay, what would your partner say? Uh, moving too fast. I have been fast. I Jay always says, I always know when you read a new good book because you come in super excited and ready to blow the whole business up based on this new book. And so his counsel to me has been slow to make decisions 
and quick to implement. Mm. Yes, you're ready to move fast. So you need to slow down on the decisions. Yeah. But continue to use your speed to execute. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay, how about uh, maybe the most important stakeholder in this? What if I call your wife and Mm. say, oh, and like as a, not just as a husband, but as a father, what is the thing he's doing with really sincere intentions that may be, I'll use a strong word, but maybe even crippling the capability of people around you. And no one likes to think that they're actually causing their kids to hold back uh-huh. I know. or disabling their capability. But if I asked her, I, what are might you, are she you asking? Say? Are you asking for her or in terms of my relationship with the kids? Either one, but what does she see that you maybe don't see, either in how you interact with her or how you interact with your children? She does not see me showing the same enthusiasm and engagement for the family as I do the business. Mm. Wow. I try to, I really focus on this and have conversations because business for me is so insanely stimulating and fast paced and there's Mm. big challenges and I walk in the door and it's a different pace. And my kids are two and a half and five and a half. My daughter's actually at my feet as we speak playing with the kitty. And sometimes just even sitting down in the playroom with them and getting on their level and playing with them for, for a period of time, um, because I, I, moving slow is like nails on a chalkboard for me. It's really hard to be present and engaged. Yeah. So, yeah. so tell me a little bit about what do you think, because the idea of diminishing is not just making people feel bad. And, and certainly if your family feels like family comes second, that's a feel bad moment for sure. But like the concept of diminishing is that it's causing other people to hold back, to play small when they should be playing big. So like, talk me through this. How do you think that creates a diminishing dynamic in your home? I know it um, comes in the form of, I invest a lot of time planning for the planning for the business. Yet uh, when I come home, I'm just gassed. And so planning date night or planning family Mm. activities on the weekend, planning what we're going to get the other five-year-old for their birthday party this weekend, who I never know, who I don't even know, uh, putting thought into what gift we're going to give that kid that my daughter probably won't be friends with two years from now. I don't think there. I don't go there. When I come home, I'm ready to shut it down. I'm ready to relax. I'm ready to be with my family. Um, That's the story I tell myself, at least. And so it it sounds like it sends this message of it's just not important. Exactly. Okay. Which is not the case. It's just... Right. it's, 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 It's not my intention, yet that's the way it's received. Because if... You're signaling it's not important to me, then it kind of saying, well, and it shouldn't really be important to you. Like, like it might be causing other people to hold back because, well, if it's not important to Jeff, then why do I even try? Like, why bother? So instead of saying, yeah, keep going, jump in. What what it really says to my wife, because she's a stay-at-home mom, Mm -hmm. I just, and I'm Mr. Leverage. I leverage super well. It doesn't make her feel appreciated. The Mm -hmm. fact that I expect that it be done, that I shouldn't even have to deal with that, makes her not feel appreciated accidentally. Right. And it might even extend beyond feeling unappreciated. It might actually cause her to not invest those times. It's, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, you know what, this is not my thing. I'm not the party planner for the family, but I want you to go big with it. And I really appreciate what you do. Meaning she gets a chance to step up and do this brilliantly and do it well. But, you know, like, I wonder if it could cause her to say, well, you know what, if it's just not important to Jeff, it's not important to me either. Like, why bother? Why try? Mm-hmm. She, okay. just, she wants to feel taken care of and she wants a break. <laughs> well, she might just deserve that, Jeff. Uh, yeah, she does. <laughs> so, okay. So let's come up with a little workaround on this, which is what could you do instead? Okay. So here's the puzzle. What could you do differently. That, I'm going to give you a constraint on it, that actually uses one of your natural strengths, doesn't require you to contort yourself and be someone you aren't. What could you do differently that uses one of your natural strengths? And I think at this point, we're pretty clear on what some of those are. 
and causes her to A, feel appreciated, but B, to go big on these things that are important for a family. Right. So this is something that I have started doing, just not with the level of consistency that's required. I'm great at time blocking. Mm -hmm. I'm great at planning. I realized when I, I mean, I plan every week and when the month changes, I've got a half day blocked for planning in my business and reviewing the business Mm -hmm. plan and the annual goals and the monthly priorities and the questions I need to ask my people. And what I did is I added a few things and put those at the top of the list, meaning I have to do them first or should be doing them first. Number one is blocking two date nights Mm -hmm. and texting the babysitters. Number two yeah. is, is planning one family activity for the month. Wait, okay, you're, Jeff, you're moving fast. Yeah. So when you say texting the babysitters, do you mean that you would be the one to secure the babysitters? My job to secure the babysitters. You know, this is big. And for any men who are listening now, I'm no expert on marriages and families or gender, but it doesn't take a therapist or a genius to know that when the women is, uh, the woman is the one at home, like when men take the initiative to schedule the babysitter, they freak out with joy. Like this is this is like a, something you could do that is huge, huge, huge for the one who normally has that burden. Yeah. Um, where I have fallen short is going that additional step in terms of actually planning out the date night. <laughs> I get it scheduled, mm. I get the sitter, and then uh, I haven't gone to the finish line. And mm. I haven't gone to the finish line in terms of, uh, I'll say that today's the family activity, but doing the research and actually scheduling the activity. Um, And I think part of it is like research is like nails on a chalkboard for me. It's way too slow. It bores me to Mm -hmm. death. So I'm probably missing leverage. Someone who can help me with that. Yeah. And there might be, and there might be a way that you can do that, that shows that you care about scheduling something amazing and fun without having to be the one to do it. And um, it might be not a matter of scheduling it and reading her mind about what's necessary, it might be about asking a really good question. Yeah. Like, let's see if we just solve that one with a question. What would it look like? (sighs) It could be during one of our Sunday family meetings to ask, honey, what are the five dates that we haven't gone on that if we did go on them would just make you so extraordinarily happy? What are the five things we haven't done as a family that if we did them would make you extraordinarily happy? Yeah, that's a good question. Oh, good. I'm going to write those down. Yeah, you know, one of the things I find, um, again, I told you I'm not a therapist. I don't do any any work in this space. I coach executives. But one of the things I find is that so many leaders get trapped because they think they have to be mind readers. Like, well, I don't know what's the right challenge for this person. And I'm not sure what their native genius is and how do I really use it? And they don't have all this time to do the research and find out what people are brilliant at and sort of intuit what they want to be done. And and I find that there's a, a coaching strategy that works in almost all cases. And the coaching strategy, um, it's very simple. It's just, well, what would happen if you asked them? Like, if you don't have time to find out the native genius of the people on your staff, you don't have to do a study. All you have to do is say, hey, what is the thing that you're brilliant at that I should be put into use? Or if you don't know what's the challenge to give them a next project that's going to stimulate their mind and get them thrilled to come to work every day, you can just ask, hey, what's the challenge I should be giving you right now? Like even what's the question I should be asking you? What What's the next hard thing that you're ready for? And I find that if you just ask people, they'll tell you. So you don't have to figure it out, but asking the question means it's important to you to find out. Well, this goes back to the multiplier versus diminisher. The diminisher thinks they have to be the genius with all the answers and the multiplier just asks great questions and taps into the genius of others. Yeah. And it might be as simple as, hey, you know, what do you want to do? Like, what would be a great escape for you this week or tonight? Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it could be even executed quite spontaneously. But, you know, the questions we ask define our agenda. And so in some ways you can communicate, hey, this is important. Like it's important to you. And so I'm making it important to me just by the question I ask. Yeah. Because I can tell you're probably not going to have the time or the interest to go do the research. Not a chance. But you can find out in the moment, right? Totally. I have a, I have a feeling, Jeff, you could pull off a spontaneous plan on almost anything. Accurate. Yeah, I have a feeling. So if you had to pick one, 
you think that if 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 I got all of the people you work with together in a meeting and we were trying to answer the question, what is the one diminishing vulnerability that Jeff has? What would the consensus be at the end of that conversation? Like if they just had to say, here's the one thing he needs to focus on. Let me put it this way. I think the one thing, if I just made one change and that one thing that would make everything else easier or unnecessary, it's my speed. Because mm. it's my speed that leads to me telling rather than pausing and asking questions. It's my speed that leads to me oversharing or leads to me not thinking through the implications or whether or not this is scalable. It all comes down to speed. And what when you go into this, what do you call it, fast forward or forward? Oh. It's your hyperdrive. Yeah, I got, I got two speeds, fast forward and off. Okay, fast forward. I might call it like insane mode. Um, so, <laughs> um, so what tends to trigger you into this fast forward mode? Excitement, ideas, mm-hmm. and enthusiasm. When I get into the zone, I mean, my mind works really fast. So I just it just starts going, and I just start pumping, and I get so excited that I get more into it, and so I start talking faster, and I got more ideas and. Okay. So give me, um, you know, I, I love the work. I love Charles Duhigg's work on um, the power of habit. And, oh, yeah. you know, and in this work, he he identifies, he basically says, we don't really get to change, get rid of a bad habit. We can only swap one for the other. And, and he kind of lays out this three-part chain. You know, we have the cues, the things that trigger routines. So we have cues, routines, and rewards. Rewards are why we do it, like why we operate at speed. And and his point is the triggers are always going to be there and the rewards for doing things are always going to be there. How do you substitute a new routine? So here's my question. like, What is it that most triggers you when you go in this mode, like excitement, like describe it, like what's the physiological thing that's happening? Like what I want to know is I want to impress on your mind like when you see this excitement thing happening, when you feel it like welling up in your body and like your mind starts to race, like what's the thing where you're going to go, oh, that's my trigger. This is going to trigger speed. And I'm going to use this trigger like that I noticed it's happening and I'm going to use it to then slow down, ask a question. I think it's a, um, I'm putting myself in all these situations it usually comes down to a desire to know the answer mm. and share the answer. It does something for me to be uh, considered smart. Even even though I don't want to be the smartest person in the room, I know that's not the right thing. There's still inner work to be done there. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, maybe I could give you just a little bit of phrasing on here that could possibly help, which is when your mind starts racing for an answer, when you feel that racing happening in your head, let that racing be a sign that it's time to slow down. That's great. That's my challenge to you, Jeff, is just watch for the racing of the mind and say, okay, my mind is racing. I need to slow down. And the reason why you're slowing down is because you're going to let other people, it's like almost like you're going to slow down and let other people get in the car with you to go with you. When your mind's racing, slow down and let other people get on board. I love that because I know when my mind starts to race and to be able to take a breath and ask a question rather than make a statement. Yeah, or play fewer chips. I think there's a lot of things you can attach to it. But I know for myself, um, it's funny that you bring up excitement. Some of my um, diminishing qualities come out when... I'm excited. And particularly when there's learning happening and when people are learning things and I'm learning things, I get excited and it's this kind of racing kind of thing. And that's when I see like people's eyes sparkling about what they're learning. I've learned to say that's my trigger and I'm going to stop and hear what other people are learning rather than tell them what I'm learning because that's what I'm excited about. Right. Oh, like you found that in the data too? Well, I noticed this and I noticed this. And oh, I was off at a conference and they were talking about this. And I start to overload and I have now been a wet blanket on the learning of others. <laughs> and what do I want? What do I really want more than anything? I want a whole team of people who are learning and growing as fast as I am and as fast as we need to be. So 
that's your challenge. I love it. I'm going to keep looking for the one that tends to bait my accidental diminisher. So Jeff, why don't, um, I'm sure you've got some final thoughts, but you know, just as you have reflected on your own strengths as, as a leader, the things that you do that very much multiply the capability of others and the things that you've been able to see in yourself that can be end up being accidental diminishers, what would be your kind of one thing advice to other leaders who are on this path? Yeah, well, this is the the timing of this was really interesting because when I was reading the book and when you and I did our had our first conversation that we recorded was right before I brought Kaylin on. So it was very intentional that I was reading the book right before she came on because I knew I needed to step my game up. And what was interesting was going through it and asking, where am I accidentally diminishing? Being able to give it a name, being able to say, you'll know I'm accidentally doing this when I start doing this. And here's what I'm giving you permission to say to me so that I actually end up being a multiplier for you rather than a diminisher. What was interesting about that, uh, I think a lot of leaders may struggle with being that level, that level of vulnerability with their people. I think for her... By the time we finished our first 90 days, she shared that I was one of the most coachable and approachable people she's ever met. Mm. And it made her it, it gave made her feel comfortable to have conversations with me that she's never had with a boss before. Yeah. And it's amazing and and um you know, I think there's incredible power. You know, some people say there's power in these ideas. I always appreciate that, but I think there I I appreciate it more when people recognize there's power in the language. And there's something that happens when you start using the language of accidental diminisher because it gives people, it says, I see it. I don't mean it, but I see it. And so it invites people to help you see your blind spots. And it's it's actually the easiest way to grow as a leader is to let people know you have blind spots and it's okay to tell you when you're doing this thing you think is good, but it's not. Because then you don't have to um, spend hours each week self-reflecting and journaling and trying to like see your blind spots. You've got now like a small army of people who are going to do it for you. And they're going to do it with right. with your growth in mind. And it's going to actually be a fun conversation. It's going to help you be a better leader, help them contribute more. And for a triple benefit on this, it's going to build a relationship. Like, hey, who doesn't want to work for a coachable, approachable leader? Like, it's a triple win. That's right. Well, Liz, you mentioned the assessment before, which for everyone listening, you can go to multipliersbook.com. And if you have not yet read Multipliers, high endorsement on that one. So Liz, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there you have it. My conversation with New York Times bestselling author of Multipliers, Liz Wiseman. Folks, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you do, we would also encourage you to go back to episode 145, the first one we did with Liz, and listen to that because those two together, great one-two punch. Here's our question. As you reflect back on everything that you just heard, where may you be accidentally diminishing? Here's what we've learned going down this journey of building awareness around uh, multipliers versus diminishers. It's not a bad thing to admit that you yourself have diminishing tendencies. We all do. Like Liz mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it's always the people who read or listen to the book or hear her being interviewed that, that go, oh yeah, I'm a multiplier that end up being the diminishers. It's those that go through the content and look in the mirror objectively and say, where's my DNA in this? What can I be doing better? This is very aligned with one of the three commitments of the one thing, following the path of mastery, always focusing on how you can get just a little bit better in any area of your life, realizing that there are spaces that you have mastery. There are spaces where you are doing extraordinarily well, and there are plenty of opportunities where you're still the student and there's areas for you to improve. And it's one of the other commitments, living the accountability cycle, that when things happen, you don't go to blame, shame, justification, that you look in the mirror and ask, where's my DNA in this? And what's one thing I can do such that by doing it, 
would make everything else easier or unnecessary. Who are those five people that you thought of while you went through the episode? And what would be the best way to introduce them to these ideas? What do you think becomes possible if all the people around you started looking in the mirror, started to acknowledge where their diminishing tendencies are, and made a commitment to forming habits such that by forming them would lead to them becoming much more of a multiplier? What kind of impact would that make in your organization, your team, your families, the impact you can make? That's what's cool about this journey. You're not in this alone. We're all in this together, one day at a time. If you're new to the show, please hit that subscribe button so all future episodes will automatically be downloaded to your device. And if this episode made an impression on you, we hope that you will choose to leave us a rating and review on your podcast player of choice. It helps us reach more people and it's social proof. People love to see what others have to say. So thank you so much for those of you that have left a review recently. We look forward to being with you in the next episode.